Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and this episode is the first in a series on majoring in the various academic fields of study, broadly speaking. My hope is to help you understand more of what's involved in these various areas of study, how these fields relate to the Christian faith, and practical advice as you major in this area. My guest for each episode in the series will be someone with many years' experience in the field, as well as a robust Christian faith, and someone who's learned to flourish both academically and spiritually in this area. We begin today with a focus on majors in the hard sciences. My guest is Dr. Bob Kayeda, Emeritus Senior Physicist at the Princeton Plasma Physics Laboratory, where he's conducted nuclear fusion energy research for nearly four decades. Bob has also been the thesis advisor for students who've pursued careers in government and industry as well as academia, mentoring students through their studies in plasma physics. He's a fellow of the American Physics Society and recipient of the Call Prize for Excellence in Plasma Physics Research and Technology Development for pioneering work he did in components for fusion devices. Bob is also a fellow and past president of the American Scientific Affiliation, one of the largest organizations of Christians in science and engineering. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Stan. I'm glad to be here. I'm thrilled to have you with us, given your long and distinguished career in the in the sciences and in physics in particular. So uh, let's start at the beginning as we talk about why students might consider a career in the sciences. Uh, how did you get interested in this area in the first place of of studying as an undergrad, the sciences in general and, and physics in particular? I think I have to trace my interest in science to the kind of upbringing I had. Hmm. My parents were very committed believers, but at the same time, they were very interested in encouraging in my brother and me the life of the mind and appreciating God's creation. There were two aspects that I learned very early in my life in that my parents uh, led family Bible studies. My father would always uh, put up every week a map of the Holy Land with names that were unpronounceable. (laughs) And then we had our uh, good time studying that. But even there, from the perspective of these are real events that happened, this is really history. Mm. But then it went seamlessly to uh, my father, who had a technical background, uh, although professionally he didn't uh, pursue it as a scientist per se. He enjoyed taking my brother and me to walks in the park and to try to identify minerals and listen to birds and try to identify them. In other words, appreciating God's creation from that point of view. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of seamlessness between God's creation as written in the book of nature and also God's revealed word, the historical evidence that is provided through the people that God revealed the book of the laws to. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, it was just fertile ground, if you will, for me to pursue something that I I just naturally had developed an interest in. Mm -hmm. So take us quickly through what that led to. You uh, finished high school and headed off to study physics? Yeah, no, I I studied physics in college. But one thing I should mention is that I came to know the Lord in high school. Hmm. And the first thing I told my parents uh, was that I've accepted Jesus Christ personally as my Lord and Savior, having understood from my parents, having a good intellectual foundation for this. 
And then I immediately told them, I want to go into the ministry. Mm. But my parents knew my proclivities, what I'd like to read, the chemistry sets I like to play with, mm -hmm. the little radios that I like to build, you know, that kind of thing. That sure. then they said that you can serve God wherever he places you with the gifts as he's given you. And you can also serve God in the sciences because you're good at it. That's what God created you to be a scientist and go places where you could never go as a member of the formal ministry. That is your calling. And so with that, I said, this is great. I really like science. And so that's how I went off to college and became a physics major. And then fast forward after that, I found out uh, with the encouragement of professors, uh, if I could say in these terms, you're pretty good at it. Maybe you should consider graduate school. And then I went off to graduate school and then on to my career. Hmm. Well, it sounds like God put people in your path at just the right time with just the right, right. word of encouragement or direction. So thank, right. thanks be to God. And what a blessing it is to have parents who had such a healthy theology of vocation to not fall into the so common sacred secular dichotomy where if you're really committed to Christ, you go into the quote unquote ministry, but to actually realize that you no, know, all areas of work are callings and God right. does use uh, us in light of who he's created us to be in all those realms. And uh, I've had similar conversations over the years with students who who are struggling with the same thing. They love a certain area, but they're told or they have somehow just embraced this idea that they've got to go into the ministry. And for you to have that as a, as a, as a high school student, it's such a blessing. Well, thanks, Dan. And I think that uh, one of the things that uh, I like to tell students is that some years ago, there was a, a wonderful film called Chariots of Fire. Oh, yeah. And there it sold it, a story of Eric Little. That film was fantastic in terms of Eric following the, the call to go into the mission field. But they didn't talk much about the backstory mm -hmm. because Eric Little was someone who had three laws. God, science, and sports in that order. And people don't realize that what he did was he graduated with honors from the University of Edinburgh in chemistry because mm -hmm. that was his passion. And he, the movie says that uh, he was blessed with this uh, ability to run fast from God, but also, too, the love of chemistry. And people don't realize that when he went to China, he was a chemistry teacher. Mm -hmm. And that's how he served God. And in a way, uh, that ministry actually had a practical aspect in terms of then in the prison camp. He helped students get ready for their examinations mm. using uh, bits of paper to draw apparatus. And he was mm. so good at it that these students did quite well in their examinations afterwards. And the parents appreciated it oh, yeah. because that gave the students hope, that gave the parents hope that they're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. And this is what's going to come out on the other side. So by all means, do this. And that's serving God too. Absolutely. And so those are the kind of blessings that people don't appreciate when you follow your calling and serve, want to serve God with the passion for those disciplines that uh, he has created you to love. Mm -hmm. So well said. I appreciate that. 
So in some very practical terms, what uh, what does that translate into? What type of career opportunities to, does a calling in the sciences often lead to? Just for some examples. There are just a wide variety of career opportunities. But let me say at the outset that the most important thing is to have the servant's heart hmm. to then go ahead and ensure that wherever you end up, what you do is you don't put your candle under a bushel. And I preface this by saying then that there are many opportunities, uh, whether you want to go to graduate school afterwards, whether you want to go into industry, whether you want to teach at the secondary level. What happens is that then a lot of people fail to realize that then success or failure is dependent on the kind of career you have, that somehow to put on the pinnacle of uh, success, if you will, is to go ahead and get a PhD and teach at a university. Mm. But even there, there's a warning that people so focused on that prize fail to realize then that then that is not the prize. It mm -hmm. is to serve God. Mm. So that once you're there, you can then be a witness to your colleagues, to your students. And whether you get a job in a company, you could do the same thing mm -hmm. in terms of then being through word and deed, be an encouragement and a witness to colleagues, the younger colleagues that you're mentoring. These are the kinds of opportunities. So in the sciences, there are many, many opportunities. And I must also add that even if you don't pursue a career, in quotes, in the pure sciences or engineering, you can still have that kind of love and passion that integrates into faith. Mm. Because my father worked for an insurance company, mm. but he never lost that uh, love for God and the love of nature that are communicated. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you uh, had certain observable characteristics uh, that your, your parents noticed that helped them give you some guidance in this direction. What are some of those character traits or qualities that are, are good indications someone might flourish as a science major and then in a science career? Those kinds of characteristics are in just observing your child and finding out what he or she likes to do. I frankly didn't like sports. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is that then on my own, when I got old enough, I'd go to the park, uh, collect minerals. There was one example that's very salient and frankly, a little odd. When I was in elementary school, I decided to save my allowance to buy a dissecting kit. And what I would do is that there was a local store that sold crafts, hobby, supplies, that sort of thing, that happened to also sell dissecting kits. Mm -hmm. But they were out of stock. And I remember one summer showing up every week and asking if those dissecting kits came in. And finally they came. No Amazon, huh? No Amazon. <laughs> I'm a little bit hesitant to talk about this, but throwing caution to the wind, allow me to tell you what I did with that dissecting kit. Yeah. I got an earthworm. And I was just overjoyed in the ability to be able to dissect it, identify all the structures that pump the blood through the earthworm. And I wow. thought I did a really good job in dissecting it with my brand new dissecting kit. And I brought it to my mother to show her very proudly while she was preparing dinner. <laughs> So, as she later told me, she thought her son was really weird. <laughs> but she was cool about it. 
she just was nonplussed yeah. and says, oh, that's nice. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then went on preparing dinner. But those are the kinds of hints. Yeah. Those kinds yeah. of eccentricities, those tendencies that then uh, I d- developed and manifest in other ways in what I did, what I enjoyed reading, what I like to do in my spare time. Mm-hmm. And so, it, again, it's with any other profession or inclination, whether it be fine arts, music, whatever. Those are the kinds of things that the uh, parents should say, all right, don't know, God, why you created my son to be this rather strange person, but you must have a purpose and let me encourage them. Mm. Well, and I think as parents, it's incumbent upon us all to be looking for those proclivities and interests. And like you say, encouraging our children to follow God's call as as it's being revealed in those those interests and abilities. Help me keep walking through uh, how you developed both spiritually and intellectually. So you've got this really keen interest in the sciences. Then you come to faith personally in Christ in high school, and you go on into college studying physics. Talk a little bit about how you integrated those two, you know, how how your faith might have been a help to your growing interest in knowledge and science, or maybe how your faith in your work in science became a little bit of a challenge to keep together. How how did that work out for you? I think first and foremost, as I said earlier, what I've always tried to do is to have what I would call a servant's heart and a faith in God to then say that what was really critical was an ongoing relationship uh, with God through daily devotionals and prayer, and this idea that I don't have to figure it all out. God will provide the opportunities, and just let me be open to those opportunities. Hmm. So from that point of view, I freely admit that I wasn't obsessed about how do I do this kind of integration. Um, when I was a postdoc, when I went on to the uh, to my position at the university, that's something I confess I didn't obsess with daily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But instead, what I wanted to make sure was that my walk with God was the best that I could have, and then say, let me be open to your leading. And uh, early in my career, I said, all right, I'm going to go ahead and do my science, and then continue to fellowship with believers, participate in Bible studies, but never consciously thought that, oh, here's the clear path where my mm-hmm. faith and science are going to be integrated. Mm-hmm. But slowly, these kinds of opportunities sort of appeared. And then after a while, continuing to be involved with university and uh, the growing interest in various organizations like the American Scientific Affiliation of scientists who are uh, Christians, or I should more appropriately call them Christians who are called to be scientists. Mm-hmm. There were yep. more, more opportunities to explore in detail these various aspects of how science and faith could be integrated. So, if I could just add another comment quickly on this, when you say that where there was any conflict, the conflict really was never one of science and faith, because as I tried to explain, you have to have faith that you have a comprehensible universe to do science at all. Mm -hmm. And so that wasn't the problem. Rather, it was a personal one of saying, I want to be a witness to Christ, and I'm more concerned of how I behave to my colleagues, to my students, to the values that I show at work. Mm. That is, if anything, the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
let's keep walking through your career as especially in light of these questions as you got further into the field did you start to see any mainstream ideas in the sciences that were especially consistent with the christian worldview and and how did you perhaps seek to lean into those areas of overlap if 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 you did identify some i think in one sense physics is uh, very appropriate for then uh, looking at the intersection uh, of science and faith, because thanks to some older colleagues, more experienced colleagues who are very thoughtful Christians, got to appreciate that physics, for example, was deeply rooted in the work of scientists, the earliest of modern scientists, who were Christians. Mm -hmm. Kepler is a favorite of one of my colleagues, who even begins his treatise on the new astronomy by echoing the words of Psalm 8. What motivates me, he basically is saying, when he uses these words, when you leave church and you look in the heavens, you can't help but appreciate then God's majesty and how he created what we observe around us. Mm -hmm. All through then the work of Newton and, and even Galileo in terms of then a comprehensible universe to the present day. In fact, James Clerk Maxwell, one of the most famous professors at the school that Eric Little studied in at the University of Edinburgh, that all physicists know, he was a very committed believer mm -hmm. who then felt that you could understand God's universe through the laws that he has provided. And so mm -hmm. those are the kinds of things that I've been exploring and speaking about and writing about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, how about the flip side? As you got further into your career, did you bump into some mainstream ideas and the sciences that were in pretty direct conflict with the Christian worldview, and how did you navigate that? I was doing a lot of thinking about this, and here I have to tread carefully, because when there are certain areas like, for example, evolutionary biology, which is a really kind of hot-button area, uh, which then has often been pointed out as an example of the conflict between science and faith, you know, popularized by the Scopes trial, all these kinds mm -hmm. of uh, people who I think, if I could venture opinion, have more at stake in creating controversy who are not scientists than are actual scientists themselves. Mm. In those kinds of areas, you know, when you look kind of carefully, biology, it's a science where you have a, a collection of observational data that then you try to interpret. Mm -hmm. And here again, at some fundamental level, I've always kind of felt it very kind of specious to go ahead and say that there's a conflict here because, well, this gets to be a little bit technical, but we still use the system of classification of animals and plants mm -hmm. that came from a time when so-called evolutionary theory did not exist. But it's an ordering system. It's an organizing principle. And so the organizing principle was before God created them this way. You have a new organizing principle that then says there are natural forces that then create this kind of organization. Now, when you actually study biology, most of it, it doesn't matter in terms of what is the organizing principle. But, you know, at the heart you find conflict because the group that then says, let's say you don't need God as part of this organizing principle, say that when there are open questions, oh, we'll eventually get to it. 
Whereas, you know, from that point of view, it's a little bit different from physics, where then you say you start out with the assumption that it's all comprehensible. And mm. so, you know, those are the kinds of, I know it's getting kind of arcane, but that's one example of then where then people have to really understand what is it are you, are you arguing about? Are you mm. arguing about what you see in the laboratory, what you see in the field, or the context, the worldview you put it in? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that the conflicts arise. Mm-hmm. And if I could just add one thing, you know, going back to my area of physics, you know, one of the things that then, you know, people seem to take great stock in is that when you see evidence of a comprehensible universe, the so-called origin of the universe in something called a Big Bang, that then would be consonant with a creation moment, mm-hmm. there are people who go ahead and say the existence of the conditions that make life on Earth possible. We have a solution for that. There are an infinite number of universes, and we luckily seem to fall into one where everything is just right, so we exist. So, yes, they would say to a scientist like me, you find out that you have the physical laws that are what they are, the physical constants, all the conditions for life to exist, our position in the galaxy even, allows life to exist, but that's one of an infinite number of possibilities. And that, I'll be blunt, intellectually just doesn't cut it for me. Mm -mm. Because mm-hmm. if you then suggest that there are infinite possibilities, it explains nothing. Mm-hmm. Much rather to use this so-called principle of Occam's razor, look mm-hmm. for the simplest answer. Right. Just go ahead and say, we don't know, and I choose to believe that God created it. And after that, then, as with the biologists, as with the physicists, we go ahead and do our business. But again, it's the conflict of the worldviews that's at the heart of it that I think is the problem. Right. That's such a helpful insight. And, you know, I I also think of Popper's falsifiability principle, right? That uh, unless something can count against your theory, something can't be said to count for it. And so there are so many of these, these ideas that seem to be spun out like, well, maybe it's possible that there's an infinite number of universes or what have you, but at the end of the day, there's no way to falsify that. You say, well, you know, every experiment is just going to confirm that we're in that one of a multitude of universes that have these initial constants. So so it does raise questions even, it seems to me, about the very nature of science right? and what counts as good science. Yes, and if I could add something to amplify this point that should be considered in a very blunt way, I tend to ask, what makes you want to go ahead and suggest that there are an infinite number of universes? What makes you want to suggest that if we try hard enough, Everything can be explained by evolutionary biology. What motivates you to do this? As opposed to go to your bench, look through the telescope, do the science. Mm. What makes you then want to address this question in the way you do? And that comes to the matter of the heart. That comes to then what ultimately bothers you if there is a God behind Mm. this. Mm -hmm. Not the science per se, but the worldview and where your heart is. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, let's bring this right up to the current moment. From uh, from where you sit, are there important movements afoot in the sciences, either positive or negative, that students should know about as they're looking toward or beginning their journey in the study of science? That can be answered on, I think, a multiplicity of levels. I think that you know one of the things that physicists like to talk about when they teach science or teach physics 
they put a cautionary tale out there that says that at the end of the 19th century, before the development or discovery of quantum mechanics and general relativity, and all the discoveries and the inventions that follow from that, everything from the capability of having this podcast sure. to your GPS, mm-hmm. all of those are developments of the 20th century and the early 21st century that were simply undreamt of by the physicists of the 19th century. There's an oft-used phrase, the whole point is to do measurements with additional decimal places. And that's all there is. And so that's why I think that then there, uh, to the youngster who's interested in science, All the discoveries have not been made, but instead of saying, oh, this is wonderful, it has been discovered so far, the takeaway should be in all of these fields. This is what has been discovered so far. And guess what? People back before these discoveries didn't know they existed. So let me dive right into this and discover those areas that might be of interest to me. Mm. If you like the numbers, if you like to play with chemicals, you know, what is it? You like to watch animals. Whatever it is that you like to do, you could always learn more about it mm-hmm. and come up with entirely new insights that could be unheard of, but you have to take the plunge. And mm-hmm. so that's why uh, I would say in general terms, why it's a fun and exciting to pursue in a uh, career in science. Mm-hmm. But one thing is, remember that that's what you want to do and that's what you like. I can't emphasize enough how many people then confuse this to then say, oh, I must have a certain collection of degrees. That's what I must seek. Or a certain position. That's what I must seek. It's much in the same way as if I could be frank, going into the ministry because I could put the appropriate letters after my name and preach from a pulpit. Right. You know, if your heart is not there, if you're not capable of doing it, then maybe the Lord is telling you that is not your calling. Mm-hmm. But instead, when you have these opportunities to follow your calling in places where you could have never gone to, which has been in my experience, to then talk to people about Christ, that then becomes a manifestation of the servant's heart, the openness to the leading, and the calling that God has made for you. Right. The critical thing then that I think that the Christian can bring to the table, and this is very important as a scientist, is to understand your worth is not in the science you do, but the fact that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, and that makes you worthwhile. And so from that point of view, if I look back on my career, I had to remind myself on that because I've been wrong, and I'm human, so it's embarrassing. Sure. But at the same time, I feel then that I could go ahead and switch gears, change directions, and try to pursue other avenues that when I realized that, all right, I am not the expert in this that I thought I was, oh, okay, God, thanks for this lesson for humility. <laughs> and in that sense, it makes me a better scientist. Sure, sure, yeah. Quick anecdote, after a 20-year career, I realized that there were certain areas that need to be explored. And so I said, all right, I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to try to do a different area of research related to materials. We have to make these fusion reactors out of some materials. And there were big questions to be answered. And after a 20-year career, the first paper I wrote was rejected uh, as being amateurish. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you say you, to use a scriptural example, you brush the dust off your feet, see what you did wrong, thank the Lord for this, and keep on going. Or later on, I had a really brilliant graduate student who redid some of my work 
and came up with the correct answer for a particular phenomenon, again, related to materials. And he was, you know, rightly rewarded for this. And I was just overjoyed to the point where he actually got a little embarrassed. And he says, Bob, you really don't have to give the whole backstory about how you developed this idea. And it was incorrect. And I came up with it <laughs> with the right answer. Yeah. But I was just so excited. And I'd like to think that this was from this mindset that I had that came from my beliefs. Mm -hmm. But then says that this is all part of God's abilities that he give, had given me and the humility to understand that what I really want to seek is the truth. Mm -hmm. Not in a perfect way, of course, and my feelings can be hurt too. But then put that on the table so that we can differentiate between what is our egos and what is then our defense of what we think is really right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that just goes to the point of how important spiritual formation is in this area. It's true of any area, but these are, I think, uh, illustrative of some ways that our commitment to grow more and more into the image of Christ is important for those in the sciences because these challenges arise and there's there's ways that are appropriate to respond that are healthy for us and for others. And they're, as you've illustrated it very well, but there are ways to respond that are unhealthy, both to our souls and to those under our care or our colleagues or what have you. And so thanks for that illustration of what it looks like to work heartily as under the Lord in a way that is affirming and uh, driven by a humility and the thankfulness to the Lord as the creator of all things, as opposed to what unfortunately so often is the case, certainly in the sciences and every other field as well, that uh, it's easy to develop a little bit of hubris and pride and I'm all that in a bag of chips and not healthy. Absolutely. And that in, uh, and in all fields that can actually inhibit the development of the field. And people don't realize that. Right. Here again, this is why I like the broader view that I would like to think faith in God and acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior allows you to have the big picture, as I'm fond of saying. So it's not all about you, mm -hmm. but it's all about if you really are committed to advancing your field, then you have to have this humility to then recognize when you're wrong right? and where then other directions should be pursued, even sure. if it's a little embarrassing for you to have to admit that maybe you're barking at the wrong tree. And to value and encourage others who are getting it right and doing what you couldn't do. Right. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to College Faith. 
Well, Bob, as students are thinking about heading this direction uh, vocationally, uh, who are believers, are there some books that you might recommend they read, even even as high school students, maybe, to discuss some of the points of connection between the faith and science? That's a difficult question in the sense that there are no books that, or few books that speak broadly about the the connection of faith and science. But rather, I think that then maybe the thing to do in terms of trying to understand worldviews is through organizations like the American Scientific Affiliation. Uh, it's an organization of Christians who are scientists and engineers who are called into these professions. And so, you know, if you look in there, and by the way, students can join for free and get all of their materials. Uh, including undergraduate students. Yes, undergraduate students, uh, I, I believe. Great. It does require some work because it is a collection of topics which are very specific to various scientific disciplines and deal with issues in various scientific disciplines. But there are articles as well that talk more broadly about the relationship of science and faith. And there they have a bibliography that students can look at. There is a an old book that I actually contributed to called uh, Being a Christian in the Sciences that mm. was uh, published by the Amer- uh, by University Press. It has a collection of anecdotes, stories, examples of individuals like myself who are Christians and scientists. And University Press also then look at their website under Science and Faith. Thanks. That's really helpful. And I'll add, if I may, as somebody trained in philosophy, this has been one of my areas of interest, philosophy of science. You know, you talk about worldviews as an important part of thinking about scientific issues. And it's just different language for the philosophy you bring to this inquiry. And there's a book by a couple of Christian philosophers who've got some specialization in philosophy of science that that Mm -hmm. I think is really good. Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult by uh, (laughs) Gary DeWeese and J.P. Moreland. Uh But there's a nice uh, whole section, chapter six, How Should Christians Think About Science? Mm -hmm. And it goes through a whole range of issues, including the different models of integrating science and faith. There are a number of different ways people argue that should be done. It's actually on a continuum. And I I think they do a good job of kind of laying that out. I've heard of the book. Uh, I certainly know of uh, J.P. Moreland. I think that he's definitely a a first-rate philosopher that bears listening to. I might pick up on one specific point that you mentioned. Yeah. Something I alluded to earlier, which is to differentiate what I've called the doing of science with then the science-faith integration. Hmm. If I were to say, I'm going to take Good Friday off, I'm not going to be around because I want to go to Good Friday services, Mm -hmm. I would have colleagues who are not believers who would say, oh, that's fine, but you remember you wanted to give me the results of your latest calculations. Please give them to me before you go. Mm -hmm. And so it is just totally off the radar for a large number of people you run into in your profession. So students should not get the idea that I am going to go into the lion's den uh, when you're going to join an engineering company, when you're going to go to graduate school or to a university on a day-to-day basis. 
this is not going to happen, you know, in the sense that you could be perfectly fine in not doing this kind of integration in your day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. What some have called bench science, right? Where you go into the chemistry lab and you run an experiment 10 times and you, know, you the Buddhist, the atheist, the right, yeah. Muslim all together doing the same experiment. And it really doesn't matter that, at, at that level of science. Right. In terms of, you know, how you do the science. If you have a particular interest, as you do, Stan, in the philosophy of science, that's then when you uh, you tend to to grapple with it. And then perhaps then for a separate conversation, perhaps with philosophers or peoples in the humanities, they can go ahead and deal with those kinds of issues and where then, if you will, their points of conflict or issues to be dealt with. Mm. As an aside, uh, there is an interesting book written you know, some years ago by uh, Professor Robert Withnow, mm-hmm. who's a sociologist at Princeton, a book called The Struggle for America's Soul. And there what he does is he talks about, contrary to popular belief, if you do a survey, as he had done, of people in the natural and physical sciences, in the social sciences, in the humanities, you find far more believers, not necessarily a majority, but far more believers among the mathematicians, among the Mm -hmm. chemists, among the Mm -hmm. physicists, than you would in folks who study literature, and somewhere in between are the social scientists. Where then, sometimes when I read something like that, I say, uh, you can't create, as uh, Professor Whitnow calls it, your own boundaries. Hmm. You have what God has created. Mm -hmm. There are absolute truths. And you can't finesse things in terms of interfaces. I could say with biblical finality, you will not live if you do not treat high voltage properly. There is no philosophy or way in which then you can talk your way around that. Yeah, There is an absolute truth there that implicitly or explicitly we have to deal with. Right, right. So like Dallas Willard says, reality is that thing you bump into when you're wrong. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, so so from that point of view, I think that that that's my nuance on saying, yes, the interpretation and how perspective you have on science is something a legitimate thing to pursue, but that more comes to the fore professionally, I would think, if you're a philosopher, if you're in an area that's more in the humanities, not to then say that they're any less important or less intellectually challenging, but just different. Sure. Are there any other ways Christian students can think Christianly about their study in the sciences? Anything else you wanted to say about this before I move on? Do not forget the importance of an ongoing communication with God to keep you on the straight and narrow, if you will. So that then, as I've tried to explain before, you can become the best scientist or engineer God has called you to be. Mm -hmm. To have the proper mindset and worldview that allows you to be the kind of scientist God wants you to be and will be ultimately fulfilling and not to be distracted by then those other aspects that society thinks is valuable, title, career, whatever. Sure. But to follow your true love and your true calling. Good word. Appreciate that. Well, Bob, we've been talking a lot about the practical issues, uh, not exclusively, but a lot of the practical issues to be thought about. I want to ask a few more theoretical questions. 
that uh, relate to the sciences and how they're engaged in the broader culture. So first, as believers, we embrace the idea that the world is enchanted, you know, as C.S. Lewis talks about, or whereas the psalmist says that the heavens are filled with the glory of God, uh, or as Hopkins so poetically said it, uh, the heavens are charged with the grandeur of God. And it's, it's that grandeur and all that leads us to wonder about it and it fills our imaginations. And and uh, so I, I, I'm wondering how you would muse on the role that human imagination plays in the sciences. The way imagination has a role is to, well, to use a cliche, enables you to think out of the box. Mm, okay, yeah. Imagination, I think, is a kind of a continuum in the sense that it is part of how God has created us in his image. Mm -hmm. God has to have a tremendous imagination to come up with the universe that we have. Yeah, and bumblebees and all the rest of it, right? Well, everything else, all right. (laughs) All the physical laws, all Mm -hmm. the things. Well, even in our profession, the fact that there are relatively few physical laws that can explain a whole lot. Right. That takes incredible imagination. But then on our part, being created in God's image, it then enables us to appreciate that gift of imagination to then say, my goodness, these equations describe this. I can use these to describe that or discover this or that. Mm. To Then it's not such a big leap from the imagination that I use to then apply our present knowledge to make new discoveries. Mm. I like science fiction. It's great. Just because I'm a scientist, I resonate with the imagination of Jules Verne. I don't get hung up over the fact that then he had a lot of the so-called science wrong. But just the lovely, the the fantastic stories that he was able to write that then capture my imagination in appreciating it. So I think that, you know, one of the things in terms of the role of imagination to understand that we use as scientists and engineers our imagination mm-hmm. to then think out of the box. And then sometimes it's sort of fun to think of these whimsical ideas uh, to then associate whimsical ideas with concepts mm-hmm. to help us understand them better. We're constantly using analogies to think in terms of visualizing certain aspects of the physical universe. And so I'm saying, don't differentiate the imagination that God has, that he created us to have, to then separate out what marvelous novelists, artists, whatever, paint these fanciful things or or write these fanciful things and say that they're in some way different from what we do as hard scientists and engineers. Mm -hmm. We all need imagination. Well, that's really helpful. You know, there's there's so often this assumption that uh, science is about just the facts. Mm-hmm. We do the scientific method, quote unquote, and we observe and then we understand. And, you know, I've studied a little bit of the history of science, and there's so many examples of scientists who began their journey toward a discovery by some a very odd musing about something or or imagining something. I remember the Scientists who discovered the benzene ring had a sort of a sense of that type of a molecular construction as he gazed in a fire. 
he was just imagining something that might exist and started to then go out and try to figure out, is, does, that, does that actually work and discovered this thing that had been sought after? Uh, yeah, and if I could I just uh, amplify on that just a little bit. I gave a uh, tour of my lab to a bunch of uh, undergraduates from, from another institution. And there was this lady who was the brother of the professor who was along. And we just got, got to chatting a little bit. And she said, I'm an artist. And I wanted to know what was going on in your lab. Because she saw the movie Apollo 13. In Apollo 13, they needed an oxygen scrubber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these engineers came along and they dumped on the table all the stuff they had to work with. And they had to come up with an oxygen scrubber with this. That was her moment of revelation. These guys have imagination. They're creative. That totally changed her view of separating out the artists who have imagination and the engineers and scientists who don't. That is a a very appropriate example of how we all need and have imagination. Yeah, That's a great example. And I think that's one of the real detriments of the modern educational trajectory where people are asked earlier and earlier to determine that they're going to study science. And even in high school these days, and they have less and less exposure to literature and history and philosophy and the social sciences and all these other fields that could spark the imagination as they continue down the path toward the sciences and, and vice versa as well. It's not just uh, you know, limitation that one way you decide you're going to go into the arts and maybe you never have to take another science class. And that's a problem too. But, but it seems to me a real limitation, maybe a word to students to not limit yourself too much too early. Right. Right. And I think that the another thing too has a practical aspect is that people should never underestimate the value of being able to express yourself, mm. to communicate that being a good scientist, not only is to be able to do the work, but to express the work and to explain it to others. Mm. So don't neglect the discipline of writing, because that also has an interesting aspect in that as you explain yourself to others, then you critique yourself. Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Right. It's not only very important to be able to communicate what you've discovered, because if you can't communicate it, what is, to be blunt, the purpose of your discovery, but also as you're trying to explain it, then you say, I must have missed something, and then you reevaluate. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, all of these kinds of activities are indeed, as you're pointing out, Stan, integrated and should be appreciated. That's interesting. Interesting observation. So so let's think a little more about this um, reality that we're naming it. You know, as you look closely at the recent developments, say, in the humanities, even more so in the social science, we see a lot of I'd say outsized influence of science, particularly on methodology, where all, say, human reactions seem to be reduced to quantifiable, measurable, statistical averages, say. And that's what defines health or value or efficiency. And so I I wonder, are you seeing that maybe from where you sit the other way, the humanities and social sciences are influencing the practice of science these days in ways that I'm missing? Because I'm just seeing it more go from the sciences to the other fields. But are you seeing some inroads of where there's there's more of a dialogue going on or cross-pollinization in the sciences and benefiting from 
what social scientists or people in the humanities or arts might be saying? This is where I think that, you know, we have to be really careful. And this is where going back to the theme that I've been uh, talking about before, humility comes in. It is so easy and so tempting for scientists to withdraw and, and simply say to the people in the in the humanities and social sciences, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's a big difference between doing, say, a calculation and understanding what it means. Mm -hmm. What are their implications or developing a technology? Of course, then, the person on the outside in the humanities and social sciences may not be able to tell you, as you can, how to assemble this thing that you've created or how to build it. Right. But that's very different from then telling you, wait a minute, think about what you're doing. Why are you doing this? And what are the consequences? Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, in a very deep sense, I hope that there's a growing awareness that we must recognize our responsibilities as members of society at large, and especially as believers, the perspective that we can bring to this that gives us the responsibility to engage. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's really a call to the university in particular to be the university, right. uh, not a multiversity, right? Where there's a unity and a conversation and the people in humanities are learning from the scientists and those in the sciences are learning from the humanities, including theology, right. one of the fields of the humanities. And the social scientists are helping scientists and people in humanities understand implications in the social order and the arts are involved. And so it really is a dialogue amongst many different people and uh, and not just what we see unfortunately these days of just so siloed a situation that nobody talks to one another and everybody thinks hey we're the only ones who know what's going on here <laughs> right and not only the siloing but then the echo chamber ah. where then you just talk to people of like mind yeah the problem with the echo chamber is then you become, shall we say, very selective in what you want to listen to. Yeah, And I think that that, again, I keep on repeating this, the importance of the humility that the Christian can bring to the table in this, to then say, maybe I'm wrong. Mm. You know, let me listen. You know, In a very profound sense, we should be like the little children that Christ says we should listen to, do not forsake them. You know, let them come. Because not only is it then to appreciate their worth, as then Christ indicated in that particular incident, but to even go further and say, we can learn something from people we think are childish in their thinking. But instead, let us open our eyes and our ears to them and think critically, but at least think about what they have to say. Sure, and I think that that's a that's a societal problem that we have to deal with, and uh, frankly, you know, something I'm concerned about with the Christian community as well. And that humility Christians are called to have can be that way of building those bridges, right? Whether it's in the university between disciplines or in the broader culture uh, that uh, you've illustrated so well. So thanks, thanks for that. One last question that's a little more theoretical. We hear so much about the value and importance of science in the media these days, especially during the pandemic, where, where phrases right. like "follow the science" was so uh, so central, uh, as if 
to your earlier point, science would provide the only answer to all the questions. Right. But given our assumptions as believers about human limitations, whether because we're finite right. uh, or because we're fallen and really because of both, what are some of the limitations of science uh, that, that you've come to bump up against in, in the years you've spent uh, investigating scientific matters? The biggest limitation, I would say, is falling into something perhaps is in your bailiwick, certain philosophical problems in the sense of if you have science, you can't use science to go ahead and explain why science works, why science exists, why you can do science at all. This is a problem because science is so successful. They kind of forget about the assumptions, a comprehensible universe that has laws that are there to be discovered. Otherwise, there's no point in science that you have to make that assumption about, which is something that Christians who are scientists have said throughout the ages since the beginning of modern science, that otherwise science makes no sense. And so there is a fundamental limitation to science why science works. As uh, Albert Einstein, who I guess you'd classify as an agnostic, would say, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Yeah, right. And so that's a fundamental limitation of science. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, then says that since science can't explain where it comes from, it should give us pause to then say, there are certain things that we may not be able to solve. You know, there are certain problems that are so fundamentally intractable, we may not be able to solve them, but with humility, we could say we know enough so we could come up with a solution. You know, one of the things when they say pursue the science, you know, going back to this idea of vaccines is, yes, but the idea of then suggesting that science is 100% certain about anything right, is... It's almost like a religious belief. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you should not conflate that with saying, because there's not 100% certainty, we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Right. And this is where it gets to be nuanced. When you say follow the science, don't suggest that something that suggests a very high level of efficacy, but not 100%, is there therefore worthless. And here again, when you want to draw to that kind of conclusion, what is it really based on? Is it based on understanding the science, or who do you consider to be the authority? And I think that this is a problem that Christians can think about. When there are doubts, even amongst fellow believers, what is that doubt based on? Is it authority? And here again, you know, this is something where then we do have a problem in modern society. I would say that the priesthood of the past that was embodied in the paragon of intellectual knowledge, namely the clergy mm-hmm. in the past, has been replaced by another priesthood, another authority. Being scientists, you mean? You're... Being scientists, yeah, yeah, that's right. So then you have this other priesthood, and then given that mentality and saying, all right, what is it that then we scientists have done that then first of all created us as being the new priesthood, and why people do not like or have questions about our priesthood, that then is the basis for why then people are not following the science. And I think about this a lot. 
because, you know, in a practical sense, a lot of times when I say I'm a physicist, all people's immediate reaction is I hate physics, you know, uh, <laughs> it's hard. Uh, I, but then, I, by the way, I get that too with philosophy. So just, oh, just yeah, so yeah, you know, sure, you're not sure, alone. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but then you, you think about that. Is it something intrinsic to philosophy or physics? Or is it in more a characteristic of our colleagues who then portray themselves as kind of authority, much in the same way as I'll say it, clergy in the past, not all, thank goodness, but many have professed authorities in areas that they shouldn't profess authority mm-hmm. and then did things that cast aspersions and rightly so to the entire profession. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when people then say these people are ignorant fools, they are not trusting in science. No, that they're doing is that they're not trusting authorities that have every reason to be thought of with some skepticism, not the science, but the authorities, and those are conflated together. And those are the kinds of challenges, I think, that then, you know, we, we need to face. Yeah, really, really insightful distinctions there. And I, I'll summarize what I'm hearing because I think it's a really, really important thing for students who are beginning to study the sciences in their undergrad years really need to hear. And I, I'm, I'm hearing you articulate a middle way right. where, yes, science is good. It is a way God gives us to study his creation, to learn from the book of nature, as it said, uh, in the words of Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings to search out a matter. And so in a sense, it's a kingly responsibility and privilege we have if we're gifted and called to study the sciences to do just that, to understand the things God has created but are concealed at this point. So there's that side, but then there's the humility which balances that and says, yes, but it's not the only way to know or the most important way to know. It's one way to know, and we need the others in the conversation from the perspective of humanities, theologies, philosophy, literature, history, or the arts, or what have you, so that all together we can discover those things that is is in God's good creation. So that's where that humility and that sense of calling, I think, really come together in what you're saying. And I guess ultimately then for the common good, because you mentioned that too, you know, how does this then help others flourish? And by these discoveries, how do we help others live well in God's in God's created order? Yes, no, I absolutely agree. And to emphasize again, what we have to understand is that the humanities and social sciences teach us about who we are as people. Mm. The temptation and the problem with many scientists is that they conflate the science that they do with who they are as people so that they become then the authorities as opposed to they themselves not using the science as the authority Mm. that's the irony yeah they make these discoveries and these discoveries should be out there warts and all for what they mean but then people say i have made this discovery you know in the sense that uh in isaiah i have made this idol and then now i worship it yeah and that then creates this image among others quite literally and figuratively who said who is this guy and why should I believe anything that he has done or she has done mm-hmm. because of the way he or she acts? Mm-hmm. And therefore, I mistrust the science. Mm-hmm. Whereas the prideful person who has created the image and created he himself or herself as the priest yeah. and goes ahead and says, oh, this person does not appreciate and understand the science. 
you see how that problem arises. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have the humanities and the social sciences to tell us about ourselves, to make this mirror that then says, you are people too, with all your foibles, and it's not just the science, but you who are doing the science and then portraying it in a certain way. That is what makes people then not appreciate the science and not the science itself. And who are you to so arrogantly say that these people are ignorant? No, they're reacting to you and not the science. Mm. Well, and a great word for Christians studying the sciences to be those type of people who've got that exactly. that God-honoring posture that also serves others through humility right. to your main point. Right. So, so helpful. We're going to wrap up here, but I want to ask you, is there anything else that you want to make sure you say that we haven't had a chance to touch on? I think that we've pretty much covered all the bases. And just as a party thought, God does not make any mistakes. God has called you with a particular capability. And we know this when Scripture talks about the parts of the body. Why would Scripture talk about parts of the body and be very clear about saying that one part of the body can't be considered more important than any other or less important than any other? Mm -hmm. If we are to bring to flesh, so to speak, that image, which is so important, we should then recognize each calling as that which God has provided for us as parts of the body, but then recognize we are part of the body. And I think that that's an important thing for anybody in any profession and any calling to keep in mind. Good final thoughts. Bob, thank you for your time today, for your service to the kingdom over all these years and your your work at the university and your church as well, I know. I appreciate the model you've been to me and so many others, I know. You're much too kind. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.